and serene. No earthly language is equal to Bordel's gilded bronze masterpiece, Heracles the Archer, the demigod taking aim at the Stymphalian birds, while balanced on a rock from which he has seemingly sculpted himself. So what does a bookish farm boy from central Pennsylvania do upon realizing his eyes are in love with Pablo Picasso's Woman with a Mustard Pot? He learns to speak rudimentary French, borrows two hundred dollars from his doting Aunt Lucy, assembles a portfolio of his best charcoal sketches, watercolors, and unframed oils, most of them tableau of urban life rendered in his impression of Impressionism, and finds a job peeling potatoes aboard a freighter bound for Louavre. My crossing occurred without mishap. I proceeded directly to Paris by train, hoping to locate Signor Picasso and perhaps find employment as his apprentice. Although my Pennsylvania Academy diploma read Francis J. Wyndham, I'd decided to represent myself as Zoltan Ziska, descended from a line of North American gypsies famous for their spare but powerful folk art. Things did not go as planned. Enraged by my presumption, Picasso escorted me to the second-floor landing outside his Montparnasse studio, threw my portfolio down the escalier, and, taking me by the shoulders, pushed me in the same direction. I tumbled to the bottom, humiliated but unharmed. Rube descending a staircase. As the coup de grace, he hurled a jar of azure-tinted turpentine toward my recumbent form. He was evidently still in his blue period. The glass struck the wall and, shattering, stained my white shirt with pale blotches. For several weeks I declined to wash the shirt, regarding it as a Picasso by other means, but in time I decided that the afternoon's true artistic event had been the spectacle of my ejection from the mad Spaniard's life. Chastened though I was by this experience, I didn't stop trying to insinuate myself into the Paris circle, despite my dogged persistence which occasionally shaded into boorish impertinence None of the other artists I tracked down assaulted me. This felt like progress. Marcel Duchamp spent a full minute perusing my portfolio, then furrowed his brow and said, I suggest you learn a vocation, Monsieur Ziska. Since you'll never live by selling your paintings, bricklaying is an honest trade and artistic in its own way. Georges Braque was more considerate of my feelings. I think that, at present, you paint like an American in Paris. Come and see me after you start painting like a Frenchman in Babylon. Suzanne Valadon was the kindest of all. Whenever I am visited by a young artist whose work does not speak to me, I try to recall the lesson we all know from Hans Christian Andersen. Who am I to tell an ugly duckling he will never become a swan? Keep on painting, monsieur. Something may come of it. Of course, such encouragement did nothing to alleviate my impecunious circumstances. Man does not live by bread alone, but it's a good idea to start with the bread. 
After three months of subsisting on restaurant scraps and street market discards, washed down with public water, I was ready to enroll in bricklayer's school. On a congenial July morning in 1914, I entered the atelier of André Deron, who had agreed to give me ten minutes of my valuable time and a glass of second-rate Bordeaux. Deron was among the artists whom the critic, Louis Vaucel, had disparagingly branded Les Fauves. The wild beasts, the most famous was Matisse, and while Deron's contribution to the armory show had struck me as paradoxically domesticated, a combination still-life and landscape titled La Fenêtre sur le Parc. I was mesmerized by the work in progress on his easel, an impiously cubist interpretation of the Last Supper. Even more